Luke chapter 15, the first 10 verses, this is what the Word of God has to say. Now all the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And he told them this parable, saying, a man, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, if she has 10 silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it, And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So this year, Apple Computer released a product that had been much anticipated. They released their AirTags. Now, if you're not familiar with what that is, it's a little device about the size of a quarter, and it's a GPS tracking device, and you can attach it to your keys, you can attach it to uh, put it in a backpack or a purse, and all it really does is it broadcasts its location. So if you lose something, you can pull up on your iPhone and find your, your lost device. Now, I'll admit that on, in our house, maybe the most useful app we have on our phones is the Find My uh, app because we're always, I can't find something and you can pull it up and, and make it chirp or make it beep or it'll even direct you now to, to walking uh, close to where it is. And a couple of years ago, I inadvertently dropped my cell phone in the midst of a, of a, a, a store parking lot here in town. Didn't realize I had, I had lost it for most of the day. And then late that night as I was um, getting ready to go to bed and putting stuff on its charger, I couldn't find my phone and pulled up, find my uh, iPhone app. And there it was, showed in a local parking lot, drove over to it and picked it up and very much rejoiced that that app uh, found my lost iPhone. Now, if that's not your thing, maybe you don't care about that kind of stuff, you might be tempted to think that AirTags is just another useless gadget that people spend their money on. But if that's what you think, your dear friend or you friend are very wrong. In fact, Apple joined, they're not the first to do this. They joined a market that was already quite established. And market research says that in just a few years, they think that the GPS tracking market will be somewhere around three and a half billion dollars a year. That's a lot of money paying for things that keep up with our things. Now, why in the world would we spend so much money for things that find lost items? And the reason is because we lose stuff all the time. Now, whether you're a gadget person or not, everyone in this room has lost their keys at some point. Amen? 
You've set down something important, your purse, your wallet, and have left it behind and can't find it. There have been moments in your life when maybe at, at, at the moment when you needed something, you couldn't find it. Or even worse, there was something very valuable to you that fell out of a pocket or was misplaced or something like that, and you lost it. And all of us in this room know the terror that it is when you've lost something and you can't find it, particularly if it has great value and that desire to find it. It's a frustrating experience when you lose a remote for your TV, and it's a horrifying experience when you've lost something of great value that cannot be replaced. The context of this parable is that the religious folks are watching who's hanging out with Jesus and specifically who Jesus is hanging out with. He's hanging out with sinners. He's hanging out with Um, rebellious folks who were not living an upright life and they were very upset. And so in response to that, Jesus tells three parables. We're going to look at the first two this morning. Three parables about losing things and finding things. Every person in every generation knows that experience of losing things and finding things. Jesus uses this familiar experience of losing and finding things and the joy particularly connected to finding what was, has been lost to respond to the grumblings of the religious self-righteous who were complaining about Jesus spending time with and eating with sinners. Now there's a lot. There's a lot here. But this morning I, I want to give our, our attention to two things that I think these parables reveal about the character and heart of God toward sinners. And that is that God pursues us. God chases us. Oh, there's a lot of examples you could go to in Scripture. You could, you could talk about in the Song of Solomon, the pursuit of, uh, of the, the husband for his beloved wife. You could go to Hosea and the, the uh, faithful husband chasing after his unfaithful wife. And, of course, you can go to the New Testament and you can look at these wonderful passages where Jesus tells these stories of a, of a, of a, of a, a shepherd who's lost a sheep or a, a woman who has lost a coin or a, or a father, the, the third parable, who has lost his son. And in all of those stories, you see the character of God chasing after the one who has been lost. And then then secondly, I just want us to see how it points to the, the heart of God. What does God rejoice over? What does God celebrate? And I think in this passage and in these parables, we can see a, 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 a window into the heart of God and what he rejoices over and what he loves. But let's begin with God's pursuit. Now, a couple of things here. Number one, God goes after the lost. God goes after the lost. So Jesus responds to these religious complainers, and he says, let me tell you a story. Now, who among us who wouldn't, wouldn't recognize that if a shepherd had a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray is lost, would not leave the 99 and go after, pursue, chase after the sheep that was lost. Now, I think you might can make some uh, arguments that that could be made against leaving the 99 sheep to pursue the the one lost. Maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, um, you can make a utilitarian argument and say uh, it would be better for the whole, for the shepherd to stay with the majority. I mean, it's sad that you lose one, 
but you still have 99. And a utilitarian argument would say it would be better for the shepherd to give his attention to the 99 and just count off the, the lost sheep. Now, or you might make a practical argument. The practical argument would be sometimes sheep just get lost. I mean, it's just the nature of herding sheep. Sometimes it happens. It's, it's nothing to be ashamed of for the shepherd. It, it happens, and losing a sheep every now and then could just be factored into the cost of, of doing work, and it would not be practical for the shepherd to go off and chase after every lost sheep every time it wandered away, and that seems practical and reasonable. Or you can make the economic argument, and that would be that the loss of one will not negatively affect the whole. It can be easily overcome. I mean, you still have 99 sheep, You'll likely have baby sheep next year, and so you can replace the lost sheep, and the cost of pursuing the lost sheep may actually be greater than the value of the sheep, at least in a, on a spreadsheet model, and so you can make the, the argument that it's not economically feasible or advisable to chase after the lost sheep. But when Jesus tells this parable about the shepherd and his sheep, he doesn't make a utilitarian or practical or economic argument. In the parable, Jesus makes an intrinsic value argument. And that is that every sheep has value to the shepherd. Now, there is an interesting uh, context here, and that is that the shepherd was responsible for each sheep. And if one was missing, the shepherd had to pay for it unless he could prove that it was killed by a predator. And so the shepherd had his own livelihood on the line here. It was valuable to the shepherd to, to find the sheep. But, but I think there's, there's, there's a greater sense here that the, sheep is not, the shepherd is not satisfied with most of his sheep. The shepherd is only satisfied with all of his sheep, and God is willing to pursue all of his sheep. The value of every sheep compels the shepherd to go after his lost ones. He gives attention to finding the lost sheep. He gives his effort to finding the lost sheep. He gives his time to finding the lost sheep. Listen to me, friends. God is not passive in his relationship to the lost. Listen to me. God is not passive to his relationship to the lost. God is actively going after his lost sheep that they might be found. Listen, I, listen, I know in this room there are some of you, there are some of you right now that are walking a guilty distance from the Lord. There are some of you right now that are in need of repentance of your sin and turning back to God. And I want you to hear, God's not passive towards you. He's actively chasing after you, pursuing you, going after you. In fact, I would say that he is tenaciously working to recover you. In verse 4 and in verse 8, in both of these parables, have a, have a parallel that in both the shepherd and the woman's search, they search until what was lost was found. In other words, you know, sometimes if it's, if it's maybe something that you've lost that's not that valuable, you might go back and sort of give a cursory look for it. But if there's something valuable, you start the search and you don't end the search until you find what was lost. And that's the idea in both of these parables. The shepherd leaves and he doesn't come back until he finds the sheep. The woman cleans her home until she finds the lost coin. The point that Jesus is making is that God is tenacious in his pursuit. I think this points both to the value of what is lost and the determination of the one seeking. Now, some context here for the woman and her coin might be helpful for you as well. When a Jewish girl married, she began to wear a headband of 10 coins. 
to signify that she was now a wife. It was, in the Jewish tradition, uh, something similar to what we would wear like a wedding band. It, just, it was the indication to the community around you that you were now married. And so it would be considered a calamity for her to lose one of those coins that she wore around her head. It'd be like you losing your wedding band. And she was motivated to find it. The point is, is that God goes after the lost until he finds, that he searches until he finds. God is tenacious in his pursuit of his children. And I think, friends, listen to me, I think this is a precious, precious word of grace. And this is why. If you're living in rebellion this morning, the mighty God who created all heavens and earth can outlast your rebellion. Somebody say amen. If you think you're pretty smart of outwitting God and avoiding truth, the God of all creation can outwit your hiding. You can't get away from the mighty God. And if you're running this morning, you're running as hard as you can from the righteousness of God, run with all your might, but you cannot outrun the living God. He's tenacious, and God does not give up on those who are his. And then notice the response of both the shepherd and the woman who lost her coin. And that is that when what was lost is found, there is rejoicing and restoration. In fact, I would just say to you there's restoration of the lost those who have been formerly who were formerly lost are not brought back as second tier citizens so the the one sheep that was gone doesn't come back but have to live separately from the 99 because that sheep wandered off or the coin that was went missing doesn't get put back but is marked as one that was was not a part of the the, the set for a while no both the, the one sheep and the one coin when they are recovered they are brought back and returned to where they should be in the, in the herd and amongst the other coins. Those who have been formerly lost do not forever have the identity as one who left the fold. Rather, when the shepherd finds the lost sheep, he returns it to the herd as part of the herd. And when the woman finds her lost coin, she returns it to its place amongst her other coins. Both the shepherd and the woman rejoice that what was lost has now been returned. You could put in that context what was far off, what was separated, has now been restored. Oh, dear wayward Christian. God desires to restore you to his church and to a right relationship with him. That's the heart of God. Dear sinner, God desires to make you part of his family and enjoy the fullness of being a child of God. God is chasing after you. God is pursuing you to find you with the ultimate goal of restoring you. Restoring you back to a right relationship with him. Restoring you back to a right relationship with his children to bring you back, to bring you back and to restore you. That's God's pursuit. We find that in so many places of scripture, but here in these parables, Jesus gives us this image of the pursuit of God 
for the lost. And then I think there's also a, 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 a window here into the character to the heart of God. And so as we speak about the heart of God this morning, I want to think of, I want to talk about three areas of rejoicing. God's rejoicing, the church is rejoicing, and heaven's rejoicing. And I think in all three of those areas, we get a glimpse or a witness to uh, the, the heart of God. But certainly let's begin with God's joy. So it's important to remember the context in which Jesus tells these two parables and the third one, the prodigal son, that will follow these two. Now, the, the context is that the religious self-righteous are grumbling about who Jesus is spending his time with, and they identify two, two kinds of folks, tax gatherers and sinners. Now, you may be very familiar with the context of Jewish tax gatherers. The tax gatherers were Jews who had betrayed their own people to ally themselves with the Roman occupiers so that they could enrich themselves. So they were abusing their own friends, family, and countrymen so that they could get rich. And they did get very rich, and they were hated by the Jews because of that. They were betrayers. They had, they had chased after money even at the expense of their own people. Jesus is hanging out with these folks. And then they say you, you, Jesus is spending time with the tax gatherers and he's hanging out with sinners. Now, that word there that's translated sinner means a couple of things. It can mean just the irreligious. So those are more secular in their outlook and, and, and their lifestyle. It also can mean those that were non-practicing Jews. And so Jewish in culture, but not Jewish in obedience. The irreligious and unrighteous riffraff, as one commentator said, whom the scribes and Pharisees considered beneath them and refused to associate with. Both the groups, the sinners or the, the irreligious, the, um, the non-practicing Jews and the, and, and the tax gatherers for the, for, the, for the Pharisees were sort of lumped into the same group. And they were the folks that weren't righteous. They were the folks that weren't godly. They were the folks that weren't chasing after the Lord. They were the folks who were living lives of shamefulness and sinfulness and were, in the, in the Pharisees' mind, worthy of rejecting, dishonoring, and even ignoring. And they're the ones Jesus is spending time with. And they are grumbling. Now, I just want to say a side word here. Always, always, always be careful not to give yourself to grumbling. And this is why. I can't think of a single place in Scripture where when grumbling is mentioned, it's not in the context of sin and specifically the sin of opposing the will of God. Now, the temptation to grumble is always there, right? Right? I've even had church people tell me that they're grumbling. And it always, I mean, it, there's a physical response in me when somebody says they're grumbling because I know how dangerous it is in the Word of God. Don't be amongst the grumblers, friends. The Pharisees were grumbling. They didn't like what Jesus was doing. They didn't like that he was spending time with them, that he was teaching them, that he was entertaining them and eating in their homes. These two parables point, though, to the heart of God and his joy. Where is the joy of God? God's joy is in recovering the lost. 
God's joy is rescuing the perishing. God's joy is in restoring the wayward. God's joy is in the repentance of sinners. And the contrary to that is God has no joy in the confidence of the self-righteous. God has no joy in the condemnation of the legalist. God has no joy in the, in the, in the conden, uh, condensation of the, of, the, uh, of the prideful. There's no joy at all in that. The Pharisees were so proud of themselves, and yet they did not elicit the joy of God. The, the sinners and the tax collectors were coming to Jesus and repentance, and Jesus is saying, that's where the joy of God is, right there. God's joy is in the repentance of sinners. God's joy is in the restoration of the repentant. God's joy is in the rejoicing of the forgiven. That's where the heart of God is. And I think, dear friends, that also must be where the heart of the church is as well. So I said there's three areas of joy here that point to the character and nature of God. So first we begin with God's joy, but I think there's something to be said here for the church's joy as well. Often Jesus tells parables to rebuke those who thought they knew the truth. And here Jesus was correcting the Pharisees and scribes whose self-righteousness led them to have a hatred and contempt for those they judged as sinners. Now, there's a struggle here that I think we find in every generation, and that is that when we lose sight of our own sin and God's amazing grace, it leads to judgment and arrogant contempt for those who also need God's grace. There, there's a phrase here that often gets read right past that sits, hits me always heavy. Look at what it says. In verse 7, Jesus says, and this is in response to the, the lost sheep, he says, I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, if you just read that at face value, why would God not rejoice over 99 who need no repentance? There's no rejoicing there because there's no such thing as that. Did you hear me? There's no such thing as 99 who need no repentance. And if you think you're in the group that doesn't need repentance, dear friends, you have deceived yourself. When we lose sight of our own sin and God's amazing grace, it's where the Pharisees were, it leads to judgment and arrogant contempt for those who also need God's grace. Then there is no distinction between the sinners and the tax gatherers need for grace and the Pharisees and scribes need for God's grace. They both needed the grace of God, but the scribes and Pharisees thought they were, uh, uh, did not need it and therefore had become arrogant. Notice the reaction of both the shepherd and the woman when they find what was lost. In verse 6 it says, and when this is the shepherd, when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. The woman in verse 9, she says, and when she, when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. And here, I think, is the connection to the church. Here it is. Listen to me carefully. We celebrate what we honor. We celebrate what we honor. We celebrate what we love. Both the shepherd and the woman were rejoicing in the lost being found and wanted their friends to celebrate with them. 
It was a natural response. Their heart was overjoyed, and so their natural response was to get home and to call their friends and family and neighbors and say, come on into the house, we're going to have a party because I found what was lost. I'm rejoicing, and I want you to rejoice with me. Now, friends, there's a lot that the church can celebrate. But what must be the joy of the church and cause our greatest celebration must not be buildings or prestige or influence or even great numbers. What must be the joy of the church and the cause of our greatest celebration must be the repentance of sinners and the salvation of the lost. Whatever you honor will be what you celebrate. And what you celebrate, you naturally want others to join in and celebrate with you. And dear friends, the church's joy must be a a window to and a witness to the, the heart of God. Oh, we're thankful for things that God provides for us. I am thankful to be in a building today with air conditioning, aren't you? It's about to get hot in South Georgia, and I'm going to be more and more thankful for that as the summer progresses. To take the air conditioning away and let us rejoice over the sinner who gets right with God. Amen? Let be what drives our heart to rejoicing, being the repentance of sinners. But there's one other thing, and I want you to see this as well, and that is heaven's joy. In both parables, Jesus references heaven. In verse 7, Jesus says, More joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Then in verse 10, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, I think this points both to the heart of God and to the heart of the church. It points to the heart of God, and the heaven reflects perfectly the heart and the will of God. The joy of heaven and the celebration of the angels is in the will of God being accomplished and the glory of God being exalted. So when heaven rejoices, it's rejoicing over the will of God being accomplished and the glory of God being exalted. Heaven's joy gives testimony to the, to the heart of God, and heaven's joy gives testimony to the, to the future of the perfected church. Listen to me carefully here. When Christians enter heaven, no longer will we struggle with the sin of the flesh and we will be able to perfectly obey the law and the will and the heart of God. And the rejoicing of heaven is a testimony to the joy of the perfected church. I think God is giving us a glimpse here of heaven, not just for us to see it and say, well, I'll wait until that day that I know it. But I think God is giving us a glimpse of heaven here that we might practice today what we will know someday perfectly in the presence of God. What must be the church's joy? It must be what heaven already rejoices over and what God rejoices over, and that is the repentance of sinners and the restoration of the lost. In our family, or at least for Dana and I, the scariest, most heart-stopping moment of our life came a few years ago when we were at St. Augustine Beach for family vacation. In fact, it was the first summer after we had moved to Waycross. Now, our kids at the time were, they were old enough to, to go away from where we were, but still young enough that we wanted to keep an eye on them. 
we, like most of you do, we, we, we make our way down to the beach carrying half the house with us with all of the toys and equipment that we bring. We set up a, a big tent, and that tent is sort of the hub of activity throughout the day. Dana and I stay under the tent, under the shade, we read, but, but the one rule for the children was wherever you go, whether you're playing in the sand or getting in the water, whatever you do, do not, this is when they were little, so don't go any further than where we can see you. So you have to be able to see the tent so that we know that we can see you wherever you go. And they were old enough to play away from us, but still young enough that we want to keep an eye on them. So periodically throughout the day, uh, Dana or I would, would just say, let's, let's put our eyes on the kids. And we'd sit up and we'd look and we'd find our kids. Well, my second oldest, Micah, who sang this morning, when he was little, that bright red hair was always easy to find out on the beach. And um, so we'd get up and you'd look for that, that red hair out there. Those of you who are parents will appreciate this. There is a voice that instantly strikes the chords of terror. And I heard that voice coming out of my sweet wife when she shrieked, where is Micah? More than just help me find him, it was that something is wrong. Where is Micah? Where is Micah? And so I set up and I began to look for that bright red hair. And as I scanned the, the beach, couldn't find it. So I scanned the water, I couldn't find it, and the more I looked, the more horrified I became. Instinctively, Dana and I, we got up and we began to run toward the water, and as we did, all of the horrible imaginations of what could be happening were running through our heart and mind. Where's our Micah? Where's our Micah? We, we ran down toward the water. We ran up and down the beach. It really happened rather fast, but in that moment, it seemed like time was going real slow. Frantically, we searched, but we could not find our Micah. And not knowing what else to do at that moment, we started toward the lifeguard stand, hoping that maybe we could enlist the lifeguards and maybe their radios could enlist more and we could gather a crowd to help us find our Micah. But but we were horrified and we could not find our Micah. And in that terror-filled moment, as we were walking toward or running toward the lifeguard stand, Dana got a glimpse of Micah. If you've ever been down to St. Augustine, you know you can drive on the beach. And Micah had gone behind our tent and behind some cars so that he could write in the sand on that smooth sand where the cars had leveled it out. And he'd been back there happily playing while his mom and I were having a heart attack on the front of the beach. And at that point, he was happily making himself going back to the tent so that he could get some more toys and move on with his day at the beach. Now, I'll admit, if you've ever lost a child, there, there's a double emotion that happens. One is you're rejoicing over the finding of the kid, and then the other one is you're about ready to kill them for putting you through that moment of horror terror. He was 
happy-go-lucky having a day at the beach. We've wrapped him up in an embrace. Dana's crying. It was horrible. But we were rejoicing that our son who was lost had been found. Now, even if you didn't know me, even if we had never met and you just heard that story, you can understand that there would have been nothing that day that would have stopped Dana and I from looking until we found our Mike. Do you appreciate that? It may have been lunchtime. I really don't know what time it was. It may have been lunchtime and maybe been time to eat. We would not have stopped and said, you know, let's get a hamburger before we keep looking. It's probably hot. It's always hot. Okay, so why don't, we, why don't we go inside and rest in the air condition and then we'll go back and no, none of that would have happened. We would, because he is intrinsically valuable to us, we would have searched and looked and turned over every grain of sand on that beach until we found our son. Because that's what moms and dads do for their children. And dear friends, don't you understand that the God of all heaven, of all creation, of all time, who was and is and is to come, who perfectly and intimately wove you together in your mother's womb, who knows every hair upon your head and every breath that you'll ever breathe and every number of your days, don't you know that when you're lost, he's not willing to wait? Don't you know that when you're lost, he is tenaciously going after you and will search until he finds you and restores you? And dear friends, don't you know that the rejoicing heart of God is that you would be restored? That what lights the heart of God on fire is that when a sinner who is far off repents and comes home, when one who is lost is found, when one who is far off is brought back in fellowship with God, that's what he rejoices over. And he will not quit. He will not stop until he finds his lost sheep.